us to catch up over the month that we were on recess. So thank you for your patience and thank you for being here. Mr. Manager. All right, thank you, Mayor. So we will be um, a little bit flexible these next uh, 50 minutes or so. Uh, obviously, we have uh, McKenna Yarbrough, and I'll do a more formal introduction in a second, talking about animal care. Uh, on the plate are uh, Morgan Whalen's uh, legislative update. We're really trying to get that to you earlier than usual, so I, I'm hoping we can get to her, and I think we will. Um, there's a 100 block of Granby Street item on your agenda tonight. Uh, candidly, if we don't get to that, it's okay, but it's as much to know the, 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 for the community to know. Uh, poor Michael Willits, we, we warned him that he might get bumped uh, tonight, but we, we really do want you to have that Maker Studio conversation before um, before they open up. And then uh, I need uh, three minutes to give you the, the, the retreat update. So but, but with that said, uh, we had the agenda review meeting with the mayor and vice mayor and uh, clerk and the city attorney. And want you, as, as we're out front tonight, you've got two or three items, uh, encroachments, two encroachments, and a and the traffic control signs that are pretty benign things. But what Bernard's telling me is uh, you've, you've never not approved one of these encroachments. And um, so I'm going to recommend to you that you, you remember the, the um, consent agenda. We said we're going to try it out. We're going to put a few things on there. We're going to do uh, uh, grants and um, uh, planning commission 7-0 and tax overpayments and and we'll see how we go. I think it's gone well. I think the mayor and vice mayor uh, would agree with me. But I'm going to recommend to you that um, you put those on your consent agenda going forward. So take a peek at your agenda. We can talk more about that. So with that said, we'd like to welcome uh, McKenna Yarbrough. McKenna is the executive director of the Lynchburg uh, Humane Society since uh, 2009. And um, she, we've been trying to get her in here since, uh, good golly, your last retreat. Uh, but to give her a, a full time, um, she began her, she's the first executive director for the organization and began her animal welfare career in 2000 with the Richmond SPCA, uh, first as the director of education, then as the director of operations. Prior to arriving in Lynchburg, she was the associate director for the Charlottesville Albemarle SPCA. She's worked with the board to implement a long range plan to take the community to no kill. So with that, I'm going to recognize and uh, welcome Ms. Yarborough. Thank you very much. I just want to say first off thank you to the city council and to staff of the city. I think it really says a lot that you're allowing me as much time as you're giving me, especially coming back from your summer break. So thank you, because it also shows those of us in the room who care about animals, and I would assume that's everybody here, that um, you care about the pets here in Norfolk. So thank you. So what I'm going to do first is um, explain why I'm here in some ways. Um, I want to talk about Lynchburg. I just want to share with you our story because I think it's inspirational and it might give you some ideas on how we can easily make some changes in Norfolk. And then I want to go through some ideas that I had for the Norfolk shelter. Um, I want to first also say that I'm coming from a place of wanting to be helpful and a resource. I'm not here to judge. I'm only here to be um, helpful and hopefully you can see that. So first off, let me say that the main reason I'm here is because um, Best Friends um, Animal Society in 2016 declared that they wanted to take the nation um, no-kill by 2025. They are putting all their resources and money towards um, making this happen within the United States. Um, a small group of us went to a conference and we heard this message and we came back from that conference and we were a part of the Virginia Federation of Humane Societies, and we decided to take a look at the state of Virginia and look at it in such a way of saying, how can we help these organizations that aren't quite there yet? And how can we all rally together as partners in this challenge to kind of create a no-kill Virginia? And we, our goal is a no-kill Virginia by 2020. 
So this next slide I'm going to show is from Best Friends Animal Society. And this is their um, hot pocket, so to speak. Um, didn't think I'd reference a food tonight, but the idea is that these red areas are the areas within the state that they're dedicated to seeing a difference and helping. Um, the areas are Norfolk City, Danville City, Newport News, City, and Frederick. This is not um, organizational focused. They're focused on the, the community. So this is not saying that Norfolk City's um, Norfolk City shelter, the public shelter, is the one who is euthanizing all these animals. They're saying in the city of Norfolk that that is the number one hot spot for them to focus their resources and try and help. So let me explain it because at first glance everyone's like, I don't understand that. Can you all see? I know I'm in your way. So the killed, and it's a hard word, but best friends likes to use that word, um, the, the number for Norfolk to reach a 90% save rate is for 2,700 animals to not be euthanized in the city limits. That's their gauge for how many number of animals need to be saved, and they believe that's a treatable, savable pets. So this is their, their countdown in a sense. The life-saving gap is um, kind of irrelevant for this. They're suggesting that um, Norfolk is 19% of that life-saving gap in the state. Danville and Norfolk together would be 32%, and that adds it on down. So real quick, how did Lynchburg get to where they are now? Um, it all started with a board member who read Nathan Winograd's um, redemption book. And the, if, if you all don't know redemption, it's the gospel, so to speak, and the handbook for a lot of no-kill organizations and how to get to a no-kill status. And she read it because she didn't believe in it. She thought that she would read it so she could discredit it. And so, um, to her surprise, she read it and realized that there was a better way of doing it. And she then had the whole board read the, the book. They hired me as their first executive director. I first came in and consulted with them to try and give them some new programs and give them some ideas on how to save more pets. Um, we created a long-range plan and had a real clear vision on where we wanted to go. And with that vision, we were able to engage the community. Because once you have a solution to the problem and you tell people how you're going to reach to that goal, they came out in droves trying to help us. So this is what our vision statement was. We basically envisioned uh, achieving a zero tolerance for ending the lives of savable pets in the Lynchburg community. This is how we were going to do it. We were increasing uh, placement. We were going to uh, promote programs to target low-income um, pet owners, cats, because we had a cat issue, pit bulls. We felt like we had too many pit bulls in our community. And then we also did a research um, feasibility study on whether we should rehab our current facility, which you'll see photos of later, or if we should um, build a new one. We decided to build a new one. We felt that we needed um, a new shelter in order to achieve no-kill. That's how the board felt. And the desired result was a no-kill community by 2015. So quick snapshot, um, 2009, this is what we looked like. We are the public shelter for the city of Lynchburg. At that time, we were getting $104,000 a year for those services. We were intaking 2,700 animals. Um, we were euthanizing more than half, and our shelter budget was 400000 give or take. We had nine employees. We had six board members. 
2014 is the last year we were in our old building. The old building is owned by the city, and we just leased it for a dollar a year, and trust me, it was worth that. Um, <laughs> our intake had reduced, and we were euthanizing only 6%, and our shelter operations were at 720. And again, we were getting $104,000 from the city. So the difference in those two budgets has a lot to do with the public support. We declared we were going to go no-kill. We got help from foundations. We got help from community members, and we were able to really generate the money we needed in, in order to really produce some of the programs that, that existed. Um, and then now we are still the public shelter for the city. We have uh, increased our intake to 4000 a year. Um, we're still um, well within the no-kill range. Obviously, we've dropped a little bit. And then our shelter operations now are $1.8 million. We're in a really nice building. You'll see photos later. Sorry. Or a separate organization that's a 501c3? Correct. Okay. Yeah, so we are, the, uh, we are a nonprofit organization with the shelter contract. We do not do animal control. I, uh, <laughs> that's a big, big challenge we have not been asked to take on, and I'm glad. So, just down and dirty, basic changes that we implemented. The first thing for um, me coming in was really to change the attitude and the culture within the organization. So, um, we started going through and really trying to retrain the way we thought about people because the staff was angry, the staff was depressed that they were having to euthanize so many animals. And really, for us, we wanted to save animals, but we wanted to save people and our staff. It's just not fair for them to have to euthanize as many animals as they were. So it's hard to sometimes have a positive attitude about the people that you're taking the problems off of. So we started to retrain them to realize that most people are good and they truly will help you if you ask for the help. Um, we wanted to be authentic and open. We wanted to share our journey with the public. We wanted them to know what the problems were because if they didn't know what the problems were, then how are they going to help us? So we started to also track our failures and track our successes. So I talk a lot about stats when I do this presentation in a longer form because it's important for us to track things and make sure, are we meeting the goals? Are we failing in certain areas? Because we then need to change it. No organization is perfect. Nobody's perfect. So we did a lot of that and allowed staff to realize that they can make mistakes. Um, we changed the mindset, basically, and we started to be solution-based in our thoughts, and we took killing out of the toolbox. We just didn't think of it as, a, as an avenue. We decided that we would find other ways of, of dealing with an issue. And so we evaluated our policies. We did a lot of soul-searching, and, you know, we all have fears in this field, and so you have to decide, is this a fear or is this true? Is this fact or fear? So we did a lot of evaluation, and we realized that sometimes we set policies on a few bad people rather than the masses and the, the people who actually will do the right thing. So the next thing we did is we looked at adoption policies. Um, I did this on day two. I got rid of a lot of our adoption policies that were very restrictive, very barrier-oriented, People came in and felt like they were being judged. Um, everything was, um, there was no gray area in a sense. You had to do every little thing in order to get a pet, and it, it reduced the time, it, it, sorry, it increased the length of stay. Because sometimes in a shelter environment, the longer an animal is there, the more likely it's going to be euthanized. So you have to work on ways to get them out into good homes. And they weren't, euthanized, they weren't um, placing any pit bulls at the time when I arrived. They were euthanizing them. 
I think they had one pit bull adoption um, over the year. And overall, they just didn't trust people. And that was the image that the community had of us. They didn't trust us. So we then started to look at um, space changes and cleaning and protocols. And so this was the building, a dollar a year building. It was really an dismal place. You walk, it was beautiful, right? Um, so a few things that we did when I first got there is we had one intake area for cats, and it had maybe 18 um, cages in it. And we had um, no real isolation area at all for dogs. They had 12 intake kennels for dogs, and that was it. No medical isolation at all. Um, and so it was inadequate for the amount of cats that we were dealing with. We had a conference room. The board met in it once a month. So guess what I did? I got rid of that conference room, set up tables, and at first it was not very pretty. We did crates, and we would drape the crates sometimes in sheets to, for the cross-contamination, but the cats were alive in a crate. They only lived there for a short period of time because we were getting them into good homes. But later on, we were able to get some shoreline cages. So the middle picture you're seeing is our conference room. We turned into a cat room. And then later on, we got some, some shoreline cages, which helped. Um, this cat room down here was filled with cages, and that was our adoption area, which was nice, except we took away the cages and allowed cats to free roam throughout that space. And what happened was people could come in and interact with the cats. They got adopted quicker. We had more volunteers coming in. It was a lot more positive environment for the staff, for the um, volunteers and the public. Our old building had no AC in the dog runs. Um, we had a total of 36 dog runs in our whole building. So we really didn't have adequate space, and we didn't have the proper resources initially. So we had to create space where we could. We took a food storage room, for instance, moved all the food out, and put a cat room in there. So we were always looking at ways to um, work with the space we had. And then staff changes. Not everyone's going to get on that bus with us and want to take the ride, so we had to go through some major staff changes. And then our image. So in the community, we weren't really well thought of. We were the low man on the totem pole in regards to humane organization. They saw us as the pound. They didn't really see us as a nonprofit. So we changed our image. This is the old logo. What does it remind you of? Like a high school bear claw. It's terrible. First thing, when I got hired, the first thing I said to the board president is, we're changing that logo. You know that, right? So we got a new logo. We got a new image on our, you know, back in the day, they actually used websites. Now it's on Facebook, right? Um, and we then started promoting ourselves with happy, friendly um, type of advertisements and flyers and ads, trying to create a culture that this is a happy place to come. We did a lot of adoption specials. We did Free Cat Fridays. We did a pity party. We just tried to create fun ways in order to um, get people in. And then the big one. The, no, you're good. It's all right. Um, give me a chance to take a breath. So the the... Um, the big change, aside of some of the adoption policies, was the foster program. So they didn't have any foster program whatsoever. Why do you think they didn't want a foster program? Anyone? Well, actually, that's not a bad way of looking at it. They were afraid. They were euthanizing kittens and cats at such a high rate that they uh, were afraid to put animals into foster let a public person take care of them for four weeks or two weeks or a month, and then bring them back in. Thank you. That's all right. Thanks. And then bring them back in just to euthanize them. So in a sense, they, yeah, they didn't want to do the work because they didn't want to go through. So 
I stepped foot into the building. I remember the first person who ever was foster for us, her name was Miss Swan. And um, we started our foster program. And we kept those kittens alive when they came back, and we placed them into good homes. Or we even better let the fosters find homes for them. There's no fear anymore because we were, we were placing animals, finally, rather than euthanizing them. They had no volunteer program. They had one woman that would come in every day. They had maybe five people that would come back, but mainly because they had barriers even to that program. So we reduced the barriers. They weren't allowed to walk the dogs. What do you think the fear was? They would get loose. Yeah. I mean, it was really ridiculous. So um, I mean, I could do no wrong in that regard. There was no program to even begin with. So we developed it and really um, showed the public they could be a part of the problem, be a part of the solution to the problem. Sorry. Um, and so then the biggest impact we had for our intake was looking at our policies for intake and our community cat programs. So a few months in, I started in July, um, and a few months later we started to do an owner relinquish program. So what that means is we are an open admissions shelter, which means we take in everything that comes to us from the city of Lynchburg in regards to old, young, ill, healthy, aggressive court cases, we take it all in. By state code, I'm required to take only straight, only straight dogs. We take in cats, we take in own dogs, take in own cats. However, we ask that owners work with us and come in through an appointment system. So we manage our intake, but we're in open admissions in the sense that we don't turn away any animals. And in fact, those animals that are in most risk are the ones that come right in and don't have to wait at all for an appointment. What we find is that we live in this field. We own and, and breathe it every day. Until you need to surrender a pet or you need to go to an orthopedic surgeon the first time, you don't know the procedures. You don't understand how that works. So when you talk to people and you say, listen, we're full. You care about your dog. I care about your dog. I also care about the dogs and cats that we have in our, our shelter. Can you wait until we have space so that we can adequately care for your pet and just like we're adequately caring for the pets that we have? Majority of the people will wait, not everybody. We have a lot of people that just walk in. Our staff takes in animals from people who argue with us because it's not worth the argument. We take in all the animals that are obviously ill or injured immediately um, or anything that we feel is at risk. Um, if they're communicating with us openly, then we will communicate openly with them and handle the situation. Yeah? So the, the, the families that you say are willing to wait, Correct. do you provide assistance to them based on what their needs are while they're waiting? Yes. Thank you. Very good question. So this is our owner relinquishment program. So we listen to their problems primarily. We just don't make it easy in the sense that you just, okay, bring it in, let's open the doors to you, it's like I want to hear what your problem is. If it's moving, it's not a whole lot I can do about that. And then we would certainly schedule it before you actually move. But if the landlord's telling you to get rid of the dog, we might call that landlord and say, hey, what's the problem? We'll cover that, you know, rental issue if that's, you know, the, the security deposit if that's the issue. Um, if you're having behavior problems, initially in the beginning days, we didn't have a behaviorist on staff. So we would direct them to trainers in the community because we may not be the experts, but there are plenty of them out there. So we diverted some of those people to those situations. So in a sense, we became a resource rather than a dumping ground. And that was important to us because we didn't want to be seen as a place where animals go to die. We wanted to be seen as a community resource. 
And so what we also started doing is t accepting owned animals in from other counties. When we succeeded, we take in animals from other areas because they want a positive outcome for their pet. And they're willing to wait. And then we also offer food or financial assistance if they need to. And if they don't want to wait and they're really pitching a fit, it's not worth the argument. We just deal with it. We were over, we're, we've become out overcrowded just like anybody. So we have a whole spreadsheet, and I can tell you exactly how many people have contacted us to surrender, how many people have walked in the doors that didn't wait, how many people. So this is our appointment system for just the kept and rehomed animals. We started in 2009. We only had 11%. We only had three months of really getting the staff on board with this. Um, they were afraid. There was a lot of fear there. Um, but you can see that it did progressively get better. And then we moved into our new building in 2015, and it dropped back down again. It's a little harder to tell someone that we don't have space in a 25,000-square-foot facility. <laughs> and that um, now that we've reached no-kill, it's, it's a little harder conversation. But instead, we try and work with them with the problem. We work with a lot of rehoming situations, where someone may not want the animal to come to a shelter. We'll put it on our website. We actually now have a caseworker, in a sense, we call it a caseworker, that work with owners to try and resolve their issues, to keep the animals in the home, and also help them with rehoming so it doesn't end up in any shelter in any of the areas around us. So the other thing we started to evaluate is our cat intake. So um, in the city of Lynchburg, which is, the city proper is 80,000 people. Um, in the general area, it's about 200,000, just to give you a concept. And our animal control officers don't handle cats at all. They never did, thankfully. So they don't pick up cats unless they're injured or there's a complaint or it's a public safety issue. And so we would get all the calls and everything coming in. So what we did is I designed this flyer because um, studies were done and they suggested that 66% of the lost pets would find their way home. If people just leave them alone, they'll go home. People make the assumption that a cat is lost when a lot of times they're just out there and they're outside of their home environment and they're wandering around. And it doesn't mean that they're lost, it just means that they're outside. So we would promote this idea that people should allow that cat to kind of find its way home, leave it alone. If it's still there in two or three days, call it back, we'll bring it in. But give it a chance to find its way home. Um, and because this stat is correct, 2 to 4% go home from a shelter. If you really want to reunite, reunite that cat with its owner, a shelter is not the place. And so, and in our area at the time, 75 to 85% of the cats weren't even making it out of the shelter. And this is a flyer that a lot of the different shelters around us were implementing when we created it. We started a city cat program. We would fix um, ferals and community cats uh, for free through a Pet, uh, PetSmart Foundation grant. So when someone came to us with feral cats, we would say, okay, so let's take them to our spay-neuter clinic. We'll let the spay-neuter clinic fix them, and then you keep them because you've been feeding them for the last five years. So that's something we were able to do in our community um, because of the ordinances that, that allowed that. Any questions on that? It's a controversial topic, and I know that. So I have a Andrew? numerous occasions about spray, um, uh, TNR, TNR, sorry, um, trap neuter relations, yes. and, and you've, you've said 
over and over that we can't that it's illegal for us to do that is it because the city run facility as opposed to they are contracted by the city you know just off the top of my head i, I can't uh, split that hair but there is state legislation that makes it illegal a crime for some uh, entities have you had any issues with that? So we're not allowed to intake that animal. If we took this cat into our possession, we would only we would not be able to return it to field. Is where a lot of what probably what he's referring to. Okay. I don't intake it. We provide a service to spay and neuter those cats that these people have already been taken care of. It's their cat. <laughs> um, so we give them a free spay and neuter and a free rabies vaccine, and then they continue to care for the cats. We just stop taking them in. And we discussed this. Couple years ago, um, there's almost a blind eye approach to TNR. Um, there are organizations that are doing this in Norfolk right now. Um, it's up to us. We don't have to do anything. We can let them continue operating TNR um, and let it. And you'd be surprised. I'm not going to release any of the places that this is happening, but it it's ha happens more than what you think. And just our animal control people, or our police officers. Um, just let it happen. Um, if they don't say anything, if nobody does anything, yeah, I hate to say that, yeah, just let it happen. But so. if folks brought in a gaggle of cats that they were taking care of. If they're okay. ferals, then we we would promote the spay-neuter aspect. But, right, and then they, they would take the cat back and what they do with the There's cats. Correct. Correct. Now, we, at first, when we started this, it was not a very popular thing because we were shifting how the, the culture of the City. Thankfully, we had city government on our side, and we had some real proponents for it in the community. And we had volunteers that would help people. Sometimes it was just a matter they didn't know how to deal with the situation. And when you educate and you explain to them the whole vacuum effect, that doing it the old way is just resulting in the same situation. So why not try and find a different solution? And that was kind of how we presented it. We were going to track and try and see if it worked. Does anybody know what the number one argument against TNR was for us here? Anybody remember it was here? They kill birds when they're outside. And so, people yeah. were, that was the number one argument that people were saying to us is that all the songbirds would be killed because all these cats are out there and there wouldn't be any wildlife. Was there data to suggest that? Yeah. And, uh, the, uh, I know that Alli Allies has done research and studies. I'll tell you the number one cause of death for a bird is people and people, it's windows, buildings. <laughs> it's cars and windows. So um, there is. You know what, honestly, there is data on both sides of this fence. I guess you all have to decide what kind of culture and what kind of community you want for you guys. So, I mean, no, no, but I can't, I could say that there's valid points on both sides. So the question is, which one do you want to lay to? So we are, um, uh, yeah, I didn't think I'd use that word either. But this is how many cats we have fixed for free in the city of Lynchburg and some of the surrounding counties. The question I've heard that, that they, the opposing side might say is that they suffer and they're sick and they're out there. Um, you know, our spay neuter clinic sees a lot of ferals. We see about a thousand to two thousand a year, and maybe two to three percent are ones that we feel can't go back out. And so we will humanely euthanize those for the owners. So I just want to make sure I say that. Um, so pit bulls, like I said, they um, didn't do anything with pit bulls. So yeah, I mean, everybody has a pit bull problem. I don't care what community you're in. And so we decided to look at them differently. So we um, treat them just like any other dog. We took off all the breed labels off of our kennel cards 
and off our website. So you have to determine if it's a pit bull or not. Because Lord knows we don't know 100% unless we do a DNA test. And so unless we know what the parent is, we don't put the breed on, unless it's an apparent breed like a basset hound or a beagle. Um, the other thing we did is we started a whole marketing campaign around pit bulls, and we made it, made it more of a cultural shift in our community. The media wouldn't even refer to dogs as pit bulls. If there was a bite in the community, if it happened to be one, they would say a dog. So we got everyone to shift to see pit bulls differently, and as a result, we don't have a problem adopting our pit bulls. We just don't. If it's a good dog, it gets adopted, regardless of what breed it is. If there's a behavior issue, yeah, they stick around a little longer because we're working on different problems. But it's not a pit bull issue. It's a good dog versus one with some issues. And so our kennels are filled with pit bulls, and we do a heck of a good job with adoptions. So I'm just putting that out there. So we had to shift our thinking as well for the breed. And then we got a new building. So this is our new facility. It's a, a 25,000 square foot facility. We raised five and a half million in two and a half years, which is remarkable, um, all because the community wanted to see something different. And so that was our, um, our glory right now, is that we have this beautiful space. Like I said, it's hard to tell someone <laughs> you don't have space when you have that big of a building. We also did a lot of programming to bring people into the space. Um, we don't want to be seen as a a shelter we want to be seen as a pet center and so we do cat yoga we have field trips now we do food truck Fridays and we even did speed dating that's the photo of some people doing speed dating in the middle so we create a fun environment where people want to come not just to adopt but to be there we couldn't do that in the old building unfortunately so we could have made a lot of excuses these are all the excuses we could have had we had no money for medical I had to work with the local vet to beg him to donate services to us because when we got something sick it was almost impossible to treat it initially. We were euthanizing treatable animals initially but we had to get the resources in order to be able to solve those problems. We had no public support. We are a rural community. You know you have those people that say things can happen in a city environment. We hear it as well in the rural environment. That's a hard word to say by the way. Rural. <laughs> Especially because I'm trying to sp speak fast because I'm being conscious of everyone's time. But guess what? We didn't make excuses. We just didn't. So 2000, <laughs> that'll wake you up, that, that picture. So in 2008, that's our base year. That was before I started. We were at 49%. So I started half of the year in 2009 and implemented a lot of quick changes. And we are at 65%. The first full year, we were at 84 the next year at 90 so we met our goal early. Now, we did downslide the next year because we had a lot of um, illness in the cat population and we dropped to I think it was 89 or 88 percent but it didn't matter we were working towards saving animals that can be treated and, and um, healthy so we also took over Appomattox last year we're you know it's a small rural shelter um, we're at 99 percent save rate we transfer out more than we adopt out in that community because it's really hard to get people down there to adopt and um, we also took over Pennsylvania County this year. Um, Pennsylvania County has been a struggle for us, to be honest with you. And um, they take in a, this is a full calendar year because we didn't have what we started in the middle of July. Somehow I like to start things in July, which is the worst time ever. But um, our intake is about 2,000 there. Again, we transfer out a good number, um, but we've been able to do fairly well in adoptions. And our save rate is about 96% there. 
Okay, so myths about no-kill, I'll breeze through these. We hoard animals so we don't have to euthanize them. You know, do we put animal, do we put cats in crates sometimes when we're full? Yeah, we do, because the crates are about the same size as our, our shoreline cages, and uh, we kind of create space where we may not normally have it when we get full. Um, but it doesn't mean that we're hoarding animals. Eventually the population gets adopted and it, it lessens itself. Uh, No-kill is just a numbers game and a manipulation and a fundraising ploy. So the one thing I will say, it really does bring money into your community. People want to help with a problem, and you get more foundation help, and you get more grants, and you get people excited about wanting to see a change. However, if I drop behind, below 90%, it doesn't mean anything anymore. Those 90% is about just a statistic. We look at the animals. We treat each animal as an individual, and if I have to euthanize a fair number of dogs because of a behavior issue, then we euthanize it. We don't not euthanize an animal because we want to keep above a certain percentile. Um, we send our animals to other shelters to be euthanized. I don't understand that. We euthanize our shelter animals ourselves. Um, we don't try and move animals around to fub numbers. We pick and choose what we bring in. Like I said, we have a 17-year-old dog now. It's with cancer and you know we'll probably put it in hospice care we take in very sick animals in fact I think they get preference over any other animals mm -hmm. um, we don't pick and choose and we don't tell the public about behavior problems or place dangerous dogs we euthanize animals that we feel cannot be placed in the public um, we have euthanized some feral cats before because they were so fractious and were very dangerous to the community we work hard to make sure that we are protecting our citizens as well. And we always disclose information if we have it. And yes, Bigfoot is real and living in our shelter. <laughs> so what can we do, what can you all do here at um, the Norfolk Animal Care Center? Again, I visited two years ago. It is a broad-based suggestion based on what I've seen and what I've heard. Um, it's the city council and the city staff to decide what you all want to do and what you don't want to do, obviously. I'm just here to present some ideas. So in my opinion, they certainly can transfer out more animals than they currently are and perhaps look, look at some additional adoptions. And I'll explain why. So, um, so far this year, they've sent out 77 animals to rescue organizations. It's actually that percentage is not right. It's 3%. Um, of the animals are transferred out. On average, for the state, it's 23% of animals being sheltered go out through transport to other organizations. To give you a perspective, our pet center in Pennsylvania County has transferred out 340 animals from their shelter this year. We understand that some shelters will say, we don't want to send rescue organizations all the cute, fluffy, or the easily adopted ones. But if I don't have any kennel space, I don't care. I want those animals in a safe place where I know they'll get placed in a home with a rescue organization who I trust. Why would I want to hold on and then euthanize for space purposes? If I can make space, I make space. And so I think that the transferring of animals could certainly be an increase um, ratio there. And so adoptions. So when I visited, I came at a time where they were doing an adoption special, and I was very impressed, honestly. I thought they were doing a great job. 
I um, wasn't even going to look into adoptions before I came here, but I decided to look at their stats. So this is the number of adoptions based on percentage of their intake. So they adopted out, Norfolk um, adopted out 2,021 animals, which is 41% of their intake, with a population of 245. Richmond is at 61% of their intake with a 223 population. Lynchburg, we're at 77%. But we don't transfer out very many from our Lynchburg shelter to other organizations because we are um, able to adopt as many out as we do. So all I'm suggesting is that there might be some room for improvement and to look at some of the policies. But I do think that they recently had a wonderful weekend. I was so impressed with their numbers. So I don't think this is a huge problem. I'm just suggesting that might be an area for them to improve just a little bit. And it's not really what I'm, I'm not trying to say there's a problem. I'm just trying to find areas in which you could increase the amount of animals being, um, leaving the shelter. Um, increase the foster program. So approximately 500 were sheltered in 2007. Um, to give you a gauge, we have placed uh, 1,500 in foster care at our shelter in Lynchburg just this year. So there is a room for uh, continued growth. And I think that if, you, if the city decided to make a declaration and put a lot of resources behind that solution or that goal, as a better word, the community will come out and want to be a resource and help. I think everybody wants to see this succeed, and I think the more that you engage the community and trust them, the more likely you will get the help that you need. And then consider intake and community policies. As I said, in the state, we are only required to take in stray dogs. Most organizations take in everything. And I know that there might be some local codes that you all might have to change in order to be able to look at a different way of um, dealing with community cats. I'm just suggesting it might be something to look at. So this is a Petco Foundation map. They took up all the Department of Agricultural stats and put them into a database. And so this is a, a different <coughs> map of Virginia to show the different areas that are still needing help. And the reason I bring it up is because the top, at least the top five, organizations that may have a higher euthanasia rate um, don't have a community cat program, per se. So it's just something to consider if you're wanting to reduce euthanasia looking at the cat population. And so we use this map. I'll say this. The Federation used this map when we met to say, where can we help? So we had no idea that Frederick County, which is an upper left-hand corner, is euthanizing as many cats as they were. So we have sent. Um, groups there to provide resources and help pull animals out. There is a whirlwind of rescue organizations that want to help Norfolk. There are national organizations wanting to help Norfolk in the Hampton Roads area. We just need to be unleashed to come down here to give the assistance. And then I think you should look at your building. I know that in the report that I read that they're suggesting they need a new facility. I don't know if that's true or not. I can say that when I visited, there was a lot of room that could be utilized. Um, I think there's a large room off of the main cat area that had some vending machines in it. Could that be utilized for animal holding areas? 
You have, I know in the report it mentioned an upstairs area that didn't have air conditioning. Could you air condition that area? Are there things that you could do in your current space to be able to accommodate more animals during those busy times? And I'll say this, Best Friends Animal Society, um, where I start to work in a few weeks, um, they have a whole national team that will come in for free and do a complete shelter assessment and provide suggestions and programs and take a look at spaces and see if what needs to change and what needs to continue. So I just would throw that out there for you to consider. And because it's a free service, it's, it's, uh, it's very, it's a, they do a really good job. Um, and then I think it's time to review illnesses and behavior evaluations. Um, when I visited, I have to say it was a number of years ago, as we said, and so they weren't treating certain illnesses that I would think they should be, um, or they might have not have the resources for. So it's time to evaluate what are they euthanizing in regards to minor medical issues? What do they consider um, major medical? And is there resources the city can help provide them? Or I know they have, there's a wonderful nonprofit organization associated. What can they do to help with funding for those things? So real quick, um, I know it's, I'm actually rushing through it, so I'm okay. So the ASPCA, who um, you all know is a national organization, just recently came out with a position on um, shelter assessments. So studies have been done to suggest, I'm just going to throw it all up here. So suggestion is that certain behaviors in a shelter environment may not appear in a home environment. Having been in this field for 18 years, I can tell you how a dog behaves in a stressful situation and how it behaves in a home is completely different in some cases. There's a few aggressive and egregious activities that will continue in a home environment, and those are the ones that you euthanize. But to put all your weight on one test is never good in anything. So I'm just suggesting, and I don't even know if they do formal assessments. I don't. What I'm saying is you might want to evaluate what they are doing on regards to what they're deciding is a euthanasia candidate and what is not, and what is the course in which they figure those out. Um, because they have found that statistically there are some false positives in there. And so this is their suggestion on how to examine behavior. And these are things that we do in Lynchburg. We start evaluating the minute they walk in the door. How do they engage with the staff? Are they friendly? Are they nervous? If they're nervous, we kind of pair them up with a staff member and say, now you're this dog's best friend. Um, and so we evaluate how they behave during the medical evaluation. We have staff walking them every day. We do many things to assess their behavior, but a formal evaluation where we stand in a room and we evaluate that one moment is not something we do unless we see an egregious act and we feel like we need to make a better decision or make a different decision than we have. And then lastly, I think that in general, the city um, might want to consider looking at what you want for the city as a culture and do you want to have, a, have a, an organization that is still using that, the word killing as a toolbox. And I know it's a hard word, but I feel like it's an important word to say because I know that there's a lot of people in this room who want to help, and we all want to see what's best for the animals. Nobody wants to see a healthy retrievable pet die just because they don't have a home, just because they find themselves in a shelter. So, um, that's a question for you all to decide whether or not you want to see a complete culture shift because ultimately nothing changes if nothing changes.
I'm happy, but I'm sad that it's taken eight years for this presentation to happen. Um, when I first got on council, there there was a discussion, and I think I have my conspiracy theories about why um, we've never been able to make um, this happen. And I do want to thank the mayor for allowing this presentation to happen. Um, I think. I feel like I have failed in trying to bring more attention to this, but mainly because of um, colleagues on council not wanting to move this forward. And I think we have a different council. Um, we did discuss uh, a couple, four years ago changing this um, and getting to a no-kill status. Um, but I think, once again, because of politics and my conspiracy theory, which I'm not going to get into, of why, uh, why that didn't happen. Um, but I, I think this is a new council. Uh, I think, Doug, that it also has to change at your management level. Um, your, um, manage, your management has to understand that I think council wants to move in this direction now um, and has to be willing to help guide and, and move it there. There are a lot of people who want to assist and get us to the point of 90%. Um, I'm always amazed. I've been thankful for no-kill Hampton Roads. I've received five paws um, every year uh, that I've run uh, and been endorsed, but it's amazing the feedback that I get from people when they see that ad um, saying thank you for what you've done to be an advocate and stand up um, for it. Um, and I, I do appreciate everybody's here, um, Deborah Griggs and even Jean Lemon on the West Coast that educated me on this um, when I first got on council. Um, and help me understand this a lot better. But I think we can do this. Um, I think it's actually, it will save the city money overall um, if we were to move in this direction. I think euthanasia costs more than it does to keep an animal. You may be able to prove me wrong on that, it depends. Um, but I, I think we can get there. Um, and I think there's lots of great people who work in NAC that really want to do this too. I think they're sad um, that this happens and they want to move in this direction, and I, I think we can get there. I, I think you should take free advice if we can, um, if uh, they're willing to come down and, and work with us and give us advice. And I think as a council, we can address some of this maybe in our budget um, as we come up as well. I do think with it's important it, so. that there's budgetary concerns as you look at, uh, and I'm not saying, I don't know the budget, to know if there's enough money there for the, for the center, but it's worth a conversation. But I just want to say thank you for letting this presentation happen. And I'm sorry I interrupted you. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Oh, I guess I can get into some of the minutiae. I've got a few questions here, but to getting to Tommy's point, um, I agree and I, I support the idea of going to a 90% no-kill. And, 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 and I've heard that repeatedly from all sorts of constituents when I ran. Since then, um, I know a very vibrant community, and I think Norfolk is considered a very uh, pet-friendly city. And this would be a great indication of going there. I, I'm curious about the relationship that we have between we have other uh, facilities that work with animals in the community, and, and how if we make were to make a change at NAC, how that would potentially influence our relationship with the others, and maybe if there are partnership opportunities. I think that would be something that we should explore as well. Okay, maybe. Um, thank you. 
and thanks to everyone here. What I got out of this presentation and the last four years that I've been on council and this has been uh, a big concern because we keep talking about it and talking about it instead of taking action. So we never check it off of our list. Um, was that there are many agencies or organizations within the city of Norfolk who all love and care for, for animals. And what is so interesting to me that they are the experts and somehow that if they could partner together and provide the ideas and suggestions to help the city um, do what we need to do to move this forward um, because we're not the experts and we do need um, the help to get us where we, we are. And that it interests me also to, to see that, that there is a possibility of other outside agencies that could possibly, um, you listed some of them, that could address uh, some of the needs of, of NAT. So I'm really excited to, to hear about that and that we haven't given the support that is needed to get us to that level of 90% or even a bigger number um, for the no-kill, what we believe in. But I think that tonight we're on the right path um, and it was a good presentation. And I'm, look, I'm looking forward to hearing from other organizations who are the experts in loving and taking care of our pets. And they really know what is needed more so than, than we do as a governing body here. So thank you to all of you for coming tonight um, and just let us know what we can do. So thanks. Mr. Riddick. Okay, um, a couple of things, take a couple of minutes. Uh, <clears throat> I'm, a, I'm a pet owner, always have been. Matter of fact, I had the pleasure of giving my Rockwaller bath on, on Sunday. And uh, she loved it. So listen, here's my thought. And I said it the last time the group was here. And I don't know how it would happen, but we own land in Chesapeake. So suppose we would go to the Chesapeake City Council and they give us the permission to use our land uh, in Chesapeake as a pet shelter. Now, there are some things that I, I think that would, you know, we got to think about travel, time, and, and certainly we keep our property uptown. But if we had property in Chesapeake and we built a nice facility out there, then by that being our land out there, then that's autom it's not automatic, but it's a, a, a good possibility it would be no kill. Okay. Now, here's what, here's what happens also. You could take a facility like that and you can make it a nice uh, petting zoo. You can bring children out there on the weekend uh, to let them appreciate animals. You could uh, have day trips for, uh, for school kids. Uh, you'd have volunteers. We got enough people in this room, and I'm sure there are other people who would volunteer and, and come out there. Uh, we could find some veterinarians that would uh, do a small stipend or either volunteer in that time. But by having our land out there, I don't know how many acres would be, but you're talking about no kill. The animals out there, their lives would be infinite, you know, until they, you know, until they died naturally. And it certainly would take somebody, you know, smarter than me to figure out how to make this thing work. But it seems to me that land uh, and our facility in Norfolk 
it's too small. And even if we uh, put money into it, it'll still be the same size. And so I just believe that we should try to get a use permit from Chesapeake and uh, build a facility out there for, let's just say that the hard to house. You know, you speak about pit bulls, you speak about certain animals with cancer and things of that nature. The hard to house. You'd have those animals out there that would be there until their natural lives, you know, were up. You know, if we want to get this thing done, we just can't think about the little small place we have in Norfolk and how much money we can put in our budget to make that work. We have to, uh, I guess you'd say, like some people say, think outside the box. Try to be a little bit creative. And and if space is an issue, and if we own land in Chesapeake that we could get, and, and you know, who knows what other facilities might say, well, hey, that's a good idea. Let us invest in that too. You know, if everybody's trying to get to the same position of no kill, then, you know, Chesapeake might invest. Virginia, might, Virginia Beach might invest, you know. Now, that might be, to you professional, that might seem something that's far-fetched. But to me, it's something that could work. So what I would say to you is, waiting until that building to happen, does you don't need to. You're, you could achieve a no-kill status in the current facility that you're in. Sure. Um, so do I think you all should build a building? I don't know. That's that's for you all to decide if you feel like it's necessary. I mean, Lord, I love our new building. There's no question. Um, it's a beautiful place that people can come and congregate. And, and But I, I've been to your shelter. It's so not a bad shelter. Create, it's a beautiful a place, actually. I, I, it was really well done. It was clean. It was, you know, there's no reason not to engage the community but there how, as well. How could we create a no-kill in, in the confined space that we have? So I don't... I totally understand it. So what I would say is you should increase your adoptions and increase your transport out. Just by removing barriers, only 3% leave through transport. Why not increase that to at least 23%? And then um, I can't speak to whether or not this building is large enough or not because I haven't done my own research on that. But what I can say is I have 300 cats in foster care right now. They're not at the shelter. Engage the community to be part of the problem. Having a larger shelter means you'll fill it. So our intake went from 20, what was it, 2,300 to 4,000. You're going to fill it. The minute we went no-kill in um, Appomattox, 71% increase in intake. People want it. People want to be able to know their well, pet's safe. So that's that part barriers, of the issue. Explain to me the barriers that we have in Norfolk that we need to kind of... Well, I think in general, working with rescue organizations, not just in the Norfolk area, but allowing animals to go up north to um, North Virginia. To we, In fact, we have 15 animals going up to an organization in New Jersey this week from our Pennsylvania Center. So removing whatever barriers that might be present, that's just something for you all to decide what those barriers might be. But increasing the amount of animals that leave the facility will certainly increase your save rate. So... Um, Is it because there's a by the current operators of NAC. Is that where you're getting? I'm I not completely on the spot. I don't know. But what I would say to you is um, I think setting parameters and suggesting certain things to change would certainly um, uh, affect change there. And I think saying that these things need to be increased would be a simple and easy way of doing it. Building a new shelter is, I love the idea. I don't know if that's going to solve your problem. Um, I just want to say I agree with Tommy. Um, you know, we have been dealing with this issue for a long time, and at some point you kind of got to pick and choose your battles. 
um, but this one um, still remains very important. I, there is a song that says, free your mind and the rest will follow. And so I think that if we, if your management team works with the animal shelter that we currently have, and the goal of every, the, the, the goal of every decision is how do we increase our save rate to 90%, if that's the overarching theme for everything that they do, it becomes a matter of how do we do it, and it becomes of how, how do we get to a yes instead of always coming up with the no. Because a lot of times we are quick to say what we can't do because we've never done it before instead of looking at, okay, well, can we do this and what will it take? And it may, as Mr. Riddick said, take thinking outside the box. It may take doing some things that we've never done before. But if the mindset is increasing the save rate, if you say, if the council says this is what we want, and then as a manager and ahead of the day-to-day -day operations of the city, you say to your staff, this is what we want. And that's the message that goes from the top all the way down to every single employee. Then I think that we will work better and we will become more efficient and our save rate will increase. But as long as people are looking for excuses as to why not to do it, and as long as those excuses are accepted, we're always going to have this issue because this save rate of ours is dismal. So I appreciate you coming here today. Um, my question is, and I think you came out and said this, it's all about resources, right? It's going to take money. You, you've said that very clearly today. So I think if this council wants different results, we're going to have to be willing to uh, pony up more money. We can't just sit here and just you know, cheerlead this thing. You somehow came up with an extra $1.4 million per year. How did you do that? 501c3. We're a 501c3. So when, when I started, the organization, like I said, was not well thought of, and, and nobody gave to us. I think the most we ever got from someone was $500. I mean, but when we publicized the change that we wanted to make, and we rallied the community and said, we're doing this differently, and this is how we're going to do it, and you all have to help us, please do, they embraced that idea, and now we're the top organization in the whole town. I mean, we are the number one nonprofit probably with one of the larger budgets because the community wanted to see it happen. People wanted to see it happen, and so they stepped up and were part of the solution. And are you getting that mostly from corporate donations? Public, private. So we raised $5.2 for our new building. People thought I was crazy, by the way. I mean, they really thought I was nuts. But I knew it could happen because I'd seen it happen in two other counties, in two other cities, Richmond and in um, Charlottesville. And so I had a vision and a drive, and the board and was very committed to it. And so we got the right people involved, and we were able to raise $5.2 million from private donations. That is not city money at all. So people want to see it happen. But, but, but again, to reiterate, you were no-kill before the building happened. Absolutely. And I, I think before the, the step needs to be, the council says, we want our policy is going to be striving towards no-kill 90%. We do that with our current facility. We get an assessment on a current facility. Correct. We perhaps need some more resources for addition adoption hours and more staff. I get that. But it's not a new building type of new resources. I, I and then we, we see where we are in two years, and then we determine what, what happens. So right. We, we reached no-kill before that building, yes. and we actually had to readjust our marketing campaign because I was like, we have to have the building. And then we reached and we're like, okay, well, well, let's back it up for a second. Now what do we want? We want a center. We want a resource. We want to be a community place. 
Um, so we had to readjust our marketing campaign in order to do that. But people still supported it because they wanted something better for the pets in the community. They truly want it. And I think, honestly, the people want it. I mean, aren't you a little tired of all the, the animal welfare people coming out? No offense to anybody in the room. <laughs> but, I mean, I'm sure you're a little tired of it, right? So let's find a different solution and stop allowing the, the excuses to continue. And there's a solution to every problem. Okay, that's exactly what I was going to say. Let's unite behind a higher purpose. Exactly. And let's bring folks together. Let's partner with foundations Partners. and with rescues. And we can make this successful in Norfolk. And we can be a good model just like you were. And that's why you're here today. So we would like to be you in a few years. So thank you for your effort. Exactly what you said. So, McKenna, on behalf of the council, thank you, and all of the residents and supporters and friends that are here, we thank you for coming and sharing. It did take two years when we first met, um, <laughs> but we, okay. we finally uh, had it done. I will be remiss if I did not acknowledge uh, Deborah Griggs, who uh, I get probably email or text uh, every day, every hour. <laughs> <laughs> Makes my point. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank, thank you, you so for much. being here. All right, so Mary, we'll do a little uh, switch around. Um, I really would ask you to take a hard look at the uh, legislative PowerPoint that Morgan gave you. We'll get into that in more detail next meeting. But part of what I want y'all to hear is we're 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 rolling, and we're really trying to be well coordinated with the rest of the region, be real succinct on what your priorities are and how we're going to follow up on those. And we'll and know we've got our legislative dinner in November, but we'll talk to you quickly. Yeah, and Mr. Mr. Manager, um, if you have your calendars. Save November 7th, Wednesday, November, November 7th, uh, for the legislative dinner. Could you all, do you all mind waiting? We're going to leave in two minutes. So just in case. Is that Wednesday? We'll leave on Tuesday. We'll leave on Tuesday. So we're going to council the council meeting now. Who's going? Well, I brought that to the manager's attention. Those are dates that are always set. That's council day. So we'll figure it out. The number six is the meeting. Number uh -huh. seven, seven is a Wednesday. Right. Number seven is a Wednesday. Right. Seven, seven Wednesday. Wednesday. Okay. All right. Well, we'll we'll, we'll revisit that day. All right. So I'm gonna do this really Let's quick. Hold a second. Nope, nope. Nope, nope. All right. Because we gotta get upstairs. Um, retreat, 17th, 18th. I just want you to know what our where our, where our heads are. If you remember, what we try to do with these budgets is tell you kind of here's what the budget is and here's what we're gonna do for you in the coming year. Uh, in um, 18 for the 18 budget, we told you. <laughs> You know, we were going to do the information technology upgrade. We were going to do the school funding formula. We were going to focus on scope and Chrysler Hall, what the plan was going to be there. And then obviously the big one was the strategy for transforming St. Paul's. So we're going to deliver on those, gave you the, the presentation for the budget last year, uh, last spring, and said, here's the things we're going to work on in the coming year. Uh, we're well underway on our strategic plan, the, the organizational strategic plan, and Greg Patrick and Pete Burek and Catherine are doing a great job there. Spent a lot of time with you all talking about inclusive growth at your last retreat and what that means in Norfolk. We're working on retirement plan reform. We talked about that a lot. Um, we've talked a little bit about um, uh, uh, the fact that we've got Amy Inman in place now and really trying to bring you a comprehensive transportation strategy. Um, uh, we know we've hired Heller and Heller to bring in. We talked a lot. Mr. Riddick raised the issue a lot, I think, in the last retreat about the our post, and so we're taking a hard look at that and we'll bring that back to you. And then obviously working with the CTE. Candidly, the one that should have been on that list it, it, uh, was stormwater policy, right? And so if you look at the next slide, Kim, uh, and start to talk about where we're going, and, and Ms. Doyle helped me with this, just trying to get my head wrapped around some of the sort of theme of this. Of you know, we've got some big regional issues that are that, that are apolitical, cross boundaries, and um, they include, and I'll come back to these: mobility, call it transportation, public safety, um, aging school infrastructure, broadband. And then um, 
our intent, our recommendation to you all is going to be that we do a deep dive on stormwater. You all are getting hit on this pretty hard. No and, and the, be yeah, the better part of a day on stormwater and really end up with you all saying this is our, these are sort of our policy decisions. We, we have, I think, very good criteria upon which we make our decisions. I need to make sure that your criteria, all right? So we gotta, we'll spend a, a good, we would, I would suggest that. Lots going on in St. Paul's, and some of you are, are really involved in it, but I need everybody at the same spots. We gotta get you an update on St. Paul's. Uh, you know I like to do something fun for dinner, uh, before dinner, so we're not gonna tell you what that is, but we'll do something fun. And then obviously have dinner, come back Tuesday. What I've also learned is, y'all are pretty wiped out by, by Tuesday. And so we do the heavy lifting on Monday, and then Tuesday we come in. Amy will give you a little bit of we we'll give you a little bit of update on where we're heading with mobility and the kinds of things we think we'll focus on in the coming months. Uh, Mike's going to talk to you about regional. We, I think we're doing some really exciting things with the region around public safety. Give you a little bit of a of a, of a heads up on what's going on there. We've got an opportunity to, to host a Senate commission uh, a committee on aging school infrastructure. So I want to talk about that a little bit. And then obviously the event that y'all seen on the fifth. Uh, on broadband where we're literally going to connect Virginia Beach and Norfolk and we think that your next retreat should have a pretty deep a much deeper dive on that but those would be uh, sort of higher or higher level conversation without the details right, so Angela um, how many times are you gonna tell us we've got old schools aging school infrastructure yep yep we well know we got old schools. Yep. I mean, but you, so here's here's that. what yeah I agree but you're gonna have a chance to host a Senate committee to have that conversation and I want to make sure that we know what it is we want to accomplish. So if you go, listen, now Mr. Riddick, I always tease him about this. At this point in time is when he tells me this is not my retreat, it's yours. <laughs> and he's right. So you all, if this isn't what you want to do, now in the next few days when you got to let me know that. And on okay. public safety, the other piece um, <laughs> on public safety is um, we bumped the chief on a report that he was bringing to us regarding um, guns, the, the, the legal sale of guns and how they end up in the hands of young people or, or they end up in, in, involved in the commission of crime. Okay. I would like to include that in the, in, in the public safety piece because I think it's very important. I think he's on to something with regard to going after those individuals that purchase, but, but to know what the numbers are and to actually see that data that um, that he put together uh, just internally in, in our city, I would like to um, see, I would like to see that. So I just, in the interest of time, I'd have to cut you off, but, but I do need feedback to exactly like that, sorry, Tom. Just real quickly, um, to go back to the animal conversation, can we get a resolution to, vote as a council on the 90% so that we can actually cement this mm -hmm. as policy as opposed to a conversation that so we, I mean, I, I, yes think, I don't want to trust you to be yeah, able to do this, absolutely. but I think yeah. just to show that council is committed to moving this direction, a quick resolution on this would be really great. And no, we left the last meeting saying, <laughs> guys, we're heading to no kill. Let's let's start that process. So, so we, manager, we get it. Stay as long as you want for the time is 7 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs>